You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. I also just want to tease a little bit of exciting news. I'm the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments, uh, and we're going to be talking more about what that means and about more podcast content and lots of other cool things coming up in the next couple of weeks. So just be on the lookout for that. And if you want to sort of have a sneak peek of what's going on there, check out cognitive.investments as well. Okay. On the podcast today is Neil Townsend. Uh, Neil is chief market analyst at FarmLink Marketing Solutions. He has been on the podcast before. Um, I love every time Neil comes on the show, but I thought this episode was particularly good and particularly important. Some really good insights about what's going on with global food prices, agricultural production, and fertilizer input prices. Also just want to plug that we work with FarmLink on their platform called GrainFox. Um, if you are a farmer and you're interested, uh, check out FarmLink or check out GrainFox online. Uh, perch. Uh, pens a month, uh, a weekly column on the Grain Fox platform, and I'll actually be speaking uh, at Grain Fox's preceding event next week. So, if any of those things are interesting to you, check out FarmLink Solutions or Grain Fox online. Um, without much further ado, let's get to this extremely important and awesome conversation with Neil. Neil, thanks for making the time, and listeners, thanks for being generous with me. I know it's been a couple weeks since we had a podcast out. Um, in my defense, it's been an absolutely crazy time in the world, and we gave you some extra episodes before, but we're back on the horse, and we won't miss another cadence again. So cheers. We'll see you out there. Neil, uh, it's nice to have you here. I'm back on the farm in Georgia. Uh, I think this is the first time I've ever recorded a podcast from the farm in Georgia. And of course, the guineas are making noise right as I say that. So good job, guineas. We planned that. So I'm here on the farm and I wanted to talk to Neil because uh, why not? How's it going? What a guinea is. What is a guinea? Uh, a guinea is like a really weird looking bird that runs around really fast and eats a lot of bugs. You don't know what they are. I used to, they eat a lot of them in, in the UK. I remember we got served oh. Guinea all the time at Oxford. Do they like mosquitoes? Send a billion of them to Manitoba. Yeah, they love, they love mosquitoes. Oh. They, I, I forget what my dad says. He brags that they eat something like three times their body weight in, in insects or bugs or something every day. They're, awesome. they're wild, but awesome. they, they screech a lot. So if you hear a bunch of screeching behind me, nobody's being murdered. It's just a bunch of guineas running around. On okay. The farm. <laughs> um, anyway, but so we're on the farm and why not talk about food and farm stuff in general? Neil, the first thing I wanted to ask you um, is that it feels like everybody has woken up to the fact that we're in kind of a pretty serious food supply situation in the world in general, especially with grains. And I'm sort of in this weird position where, you know, you and I have been talking about this both on this podcast and in other places, you know, for like two years and saying this is a concern, prices could go up, but it, it almost feels like um, the panic has swung so far to the other direction that now I'm pumping the brakes. I'm saying, look, it, it's not a global famine of historic proportions yet. Like, yes, that's one of the scenarios on the table, but let's not like get crazy here. Like there's a lot of other things that have to happen before we get there. So tell me where you are right now. Do you buy into all of this fear mongering about an imminent global famine? Do you feel like that's oversold? Tell me where you're landing on that. Yeah, I don't, I mean, there are going to be regions of the world that suffer great food insecurity. Uh, and those regions, many of them would have suffered some form of food insecurity with or without the Ukrainian conflict, the war in Ukraine. Um, you know, generally speaking, food is more about distribution than about total supply. And 
there's a concept in economics of like thinly traded. And many of the products that are key food um, attributes or, or staples are, are relatively thinly traded. Like rice is an example of that. Like very little rice goes beyond 200 miles of where it's growing. So I, I've never particularly thought that like it's a actual tangible shortage per se. It's just that where the supplies will end up being that you might think of as being exportable surpluses are in places that don't traditionally maybe fulfill that role in the world sort of supply and demand balance. Mm -hmm. So for example, India, you know, has had a very successful growing season last year for wheat and is on the verge of having another one this year. They're going to end up with like an excess supply of wheat, a tradable surplus, but traditionally they don't trade that surplus. And, you know, there's lots of talk of them getting it out and, and exporting, but, you know, it's not going to be as smooth maybe as it would be if it came from more of the traditional exporters, two of which are Russia and Ukraine. Uh, before we sort of zoom back out to the macro about India, it, it seems like a bad idea for them to export wheat. I get that they want to make a buck or a rupee or whatever it is, um, and that this is good for India's farmers. But um, it wasn't so long ago that they were having droughts in like 2014 and 2015, and the monsoon season is changing, and it feels like they're going to go back and forth between you know, periods of great supply and periods of lack of supply, and that they should maybe be saving up and building up their strategic reserves rather than sort of exporting abroad for for a quick win. Am I being too harsh on the Modi government there? Or, or do you think that's a concern? I think it is a concern. Like one thing you said, I would probably disagree with and many millions of Indians would is that, you know, the farmers probably are the last people to benefit from the exports. Like, mm you know, they've sort of already probably given up ownership of the wheat that would be exported. Um, and and again, I, I think like India has a very, very accomplished entrepreneurial class. They have a very, very accomplished arbitrage class. And Indian food policy and Indian agriculture policy is sort of designed to be like speed them up or slow them down. So in times that when they feel they might be trending towards food insecurity on a particular crop, they enable the arbitragers to bring stuff in and sell it and make some money. Uh, in this situation where they feel perhaps that they have a surplus and for other reasons they want to get rid of some of the surplus, really what it means is they're going to enable their arbitrage class to kind of make some exports happen. But it does run the risk of like, you know, things can turn around uh, very quickly in India. One thing about India is like all 365 days of the year are involved with growing and production to sustain food security for you know, 1.3, 1.4 billion people. And, uh, you know, what's true today might not be true tomorrow. And again, you wouldn't want to be the governing <laughs> uh, entity when, you know, you allow a lot of food to exit the country and then you go back into a food insecure fashion. But for whatever reason, I, I, I you know, and this is something I'm not an expert in, I, I do think they're making some political hay, maybe geopolitical outside India hay by kind of talking up a good game of exports there. I just don't think they're going to be able to export, you know, incrementally. They've already done about five to six million this year. I don't think they're going to be able to incrementally do another like five or six or seven or eight million uh, until they know for sure that their next crop is in the bin and, and safe and secure. That must also make India a pretty frustrating 
customer for, let's say, Canadian grain farmers, because you know, one minute they might need a lot of grain, and then the next minute they might not. So probably, I would guess that Canadian farmers and grain exporters are probably going to look elsewhere where they can get more reliable contracts. Is that also fair? Or and does does yeah, Canada I mean, see India, India as an export market going forward? Yeah, India is very important, and obviously in the pulses. And um, you know, again, it's despite being such a large country with so many agents making agricultural decisions, like right to the very, very small scale farmers, like the level of information we have on India is always sort of like less than transparent, a lot of unknowns. But, you know, they can signal one thing, uh, oh, we're totally fine for stocks and supplies and do another thing where they actually, you know, uh, facilitate rules, changes that enable imports. So, yeah, it, it is. It's a necessary market for Canada, but I think that if you polled a lot of people and said, like, you know, if you can sell a cargo of wheat to India or a cargo of wheat to Sri Lanka, who would you rather do it to? They probably are going to say Sri Lanka because they've established that and they, you know, they're they're going to be able to do it. Again, don't quote me on that, but I'm just saying, like, it's it's not always as easy to trade with India as you think it should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, well, we'll leave India to the side for now. And let's go back to the kind of macro situation for a bit, because there was this tweet that like five different people sent me a couple days ago, and I saw you replied to it on Twitter as well. So I wanted to ask you about it because I thought your response to it was slightly cryptic. It was this one from Dr. S- Dr. Sarah Tabor, and she was talking about why it's misleading to talk about Ukraine and Russia growing 25% of world wheat exports, because she said that's actually less than 1% of the global wheat crop. So tell me how you thought of that particular tweet. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't think that it's not the way the world really works. Like you don't really worry about the total supply of anything. It's all about how much do you have to move to places where, you know, they have a demand for it and they can't meet it from local demands or they choose not to meet it from local local supplies, right? And I just thought that, you know, it's very easy to look at the big picture and, you know, look at the USDA and say, oh, there's 770 million tons of wheat. So if we take 7 million out of that, it's less than 1%. We could A, just tell farmers to grow more, or we could just, you know, find it in in the stocks and supplies somewhere else. But, you know, to really get into the weeds here, you would have to figure out, like, why are people storing wheat? Why does China presumably, I mean, I don't think they really have that much, but why does China have, like, you know, several you know, almost 100 million tons of wheat in storage and 150 million tons of so- of corn. Uh, you know, why is there a big supply in the U.S. that never seems to get traded? And the reality is, is that, you know, there's a lot of machinations, call them, that keep wheat where it shouldn't be and, and doesn't put wheat into the supply chain. But the ultimate important thing is, like, what is the exportable surplus And it's not as big as you think, because many countries, like we talked about India, we talked about others, like they're not going to allow their entire uh, wheat to come out. And also, I mean, like wheat is, it can be considered a homogeneous product, but it's also got some heterogeneous qualities to it too, right? Like you don't always match up one-to-one on like what the quality is and what the condition is and how much protein's in there. And, you know, does it fit the use that you want it to use for, you know, and there's different colors, there's white wheat, there's red wheat, uh, there's durum wheat, which is made for pasta. So it's not as simple as just like calculating all of that and figuring out. And the other thing that I object to about that, um, 
you know, comment that she made or her analysis was, you know, like, this is the story of agriculture. Like we could go back to any of the situations in any time and say like, you know, why, why was there, why did we allow Ethiopia to have like, you know, a big a famine back in the eighties. Right. And we needed like live aid and all of this kind of stuff. Like it wasn't because there was a shortage of grains or oil seeds or, or pulses in the world. It was just, it's hard to distribute it to where it's needed to go. And especially hard if there's people who, can't afford it, like aren't going to be able to buy it, then you're reliant on, you know, aid and, and different things like that. So I, I just found that to be, you know, I respect her, like, you know, I respect everybody and their opinions, but it's not the way the world works. Like it's, it's much more dynamic than people think. And it's much more uh, difficult to find, um, you know, three or four or 5 million tons uh, from another place without, you know, trying to correct it. And then the other issue is that many of the exporting nations in wheat in particular are sort of already running, uh, you know, relatively tight stocks. So they don't, you know, they're not going to get too far out ahead of themselves before they are assured that the Northern Hemisphere wheat production is is sort of going to be adequate. And again, you know, that comes down to weather, which remains a very important variable when you're talking about crops. Yeah, uh, the, the most important variable and still not one we can really predict. Bef before we leave wheat, um, where do you think prices are going? Do you, do you think that they've gone too far um, and that they'll they'll come back down to earth, or do you think there's still room room to run globally? And I guess the the I'm going to back into that question by sort of asking not just in wheat, but in in general when it comes to grains, um, what impact are you seeing now, not just short term, but sort of medium long term from the Russia Ukraine war? Yeah, and that is a great question, Jacob. I mean, it really depends on you know what the outcome of the war is in terms of like how long it's prolonged, how much it prevents people from doing what they ordinarily do. But let's assume just for the sake of your question that, you know, the war continues for a little while and that, you know, spring planting is disrupted in some fashion and spring, uh, you know, caring for the winter crops is, is disrupted in some fashion. Let's, let's be conservative. Let's say it does a 15 to 20% damage on that. And reduces uh, Ukraine's capacity to produce corn and wheat and sunflowers and rapeseed and other things by about the same and limits their exports. Now, the exports are a bigger question mark because, you know, we've got mines floating and all the way over to Turkey now, two of them so far, uh, you know, like there could be harder to get the grain, even if it's produced out of that country in a timely fashion, mm -hmm. say in the fall or, or late summer. So, I think that probably in the immediate term, prices probably went, um, you know, they're, like they went as high as they needed to go to kind of like get everybody to pause, to say like, what next, right? For new crop, and by new crop, I mean, you know, either November or September or November or December futures for corn and spring wheat and, and uh, soybeans and canola. Um, I, I would say that I, I personally see more risk more risk in there. I would need to think that, um, I would need to have some assurances about uh, both Russian supply entering the market. They've done a pretty good job. I thought that there would be a bigger issue within Russia, and maybe that's yet to come, of uh, trying to keep some of their own grain supplies at home to kind of like buffer the prices that 
people are facing there. Uh, we really haven't seen that beyond what was already a consideration prior to the conflict. Um, and then Ukraine, I mean, I, I would just say that, like, you know, I think you could you could go as low as 50 percent of, uh, of expected exports to as high as 70 to 80 percent. But we really don't know. But I think that's a that's a tangible risk. And it's a it's a risk for all prices. But it's a bigger risk for certain markets like, you know, Amina, like Middle East, North Africa, very big risk for them. I also think it's a big risk for the European Union, like for uh, their feed feed supplies for places like Spain and and, uh, you know, just generally speaking, like uh, like there. So I I do think there's more uh, risk of higher prices in new crop uh, that you know, depending on what the outcome is, uh, maybe isn't completely factored into the market yet. And who's who's on the other side of the trade? So, I mean, this gets to your point about a lot of food being about supply and distribution. So let's 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 say with what you just said that Ukraine loses fifty percent of its of its exportable surplus. Does that translate into direct opportunity for Canadian grain exporters, or is that just? You know, a certain segment of the market is just not going to get the wheat that they were before and is going to have to substitute or not like have wheat. Like, is there is there space for that to be an opportunity for folks or does supply and distribution just make that just sort of a fact that's going to drive prices up even more and drive food insecurity higher? Yeah, I, I do think it's I think that, you know, the United States, Canada, Argentina, Australia, um, those are the four big ones, I would say. Uh, and then for other commodities such as like corn, you know, you'd also throw in Brazil and and again Argentina, um, maybe even South Africa. I, I think that those countries are going to export more than they might otherwise export. Uh, some of them, like Australia, who just had a very big crop, they'll run up against uh, you know logistical constraints, and maybe you know they won't maybe act quite as you thought they would based on that, just because they run out of capacity. But I think countries that have excess capacity in the system, like Canada and the US, uh, and to a lesser degree, Argentina and maybe Brazil, like they will step up and try to export more. And and they should export more. And that will that could probably the, the thing is there's an old sort of saying in the grain industry that you know North America is a high price island. And to pull out that sort of incremental ton from the United States to get them to go, you know, below a certain threshold of stocks to use, it requires, because there's always some farmers in the U.S. or Canada who are like, they're bullish, right? They like, I always compare them to like sort of like Charlton Heston, the cold dead hands, like they're not going to give their grain away for free. And there's a lot of, uh, especially in the United States, there's a lot of supports that allow a farmer to be relatively patient particularly on the wheat side and particularly in the Northern Plains where they have a higher proportion of their own storage than they maybe have for the average corn and soybean farmer. So, you know, traditionally when there's been years like this in the past, like back in 2008, around that period of time, up till 2012, there were some two successive droughts in three years in, in the Black Sea region and we had to pull more wheat out of the U.S., and you saw prices spike to record levels because it costs more to get to free the wheat from from uh, you know the farmers' hands there. Um, so you know the the larger the percentage of global trade that is done from the United States and Canada, typically that would be 
uh, indicative of higher prices. And you asked about like who's on the other side of the trade. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely Canada, the U.S. There's also the other factor, and that's the factor like what is the real capacity of like say China or Saudi Arabia or Egypt or you know many of these buyers to like you know to soften their demand. Like what else are they doing that? you know, would would allow them to forego the calories that maybe come from wheat or corn. And, you know, obviously, high prices solve high prices. And, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. But I do think that since the war started about 35 days ago, we've seen more sort of uh, wait and see approach from a lot of the buyers. The longer the war goes on, and the more certain that there is going to be a loss of uh, productive capacity and export capacity from Ukraine in particular, I think the less resolve some of those countries can have. And, and I mean, I think they're going to have to step in and buy. And at that point, I mean, you know, Egypt's talking to India, Egypt's talking to Argentina, Egypt's talking to the U.S. about buying more of those wheat. And those are three places where they haven't bought wheat from in any great um, quantity in the in the most recent like 10, 20 years. Yeah, I mean, we can at least say that Egypt is being proactive, though. I mean, I was looking at Tunisia the other day. You and I were talking about Tunisia. I mean, they're just fiddling while Tunis is burning. I don't know what they're doing. They're having political arguments inside of Tunisia. I don't see them running around trying to get any alternate supplies from anyone. And they get most, they get what, half of their wheat or something like that from Ukraine. So to your point, there, there seem to be a couple countries out there that are really, it's that food insecurity for them is already baked in, even if the war ended tomorrow and Putin said, uh, Zelensky can have everything he wants that we, we would have countries that would be facing that kind of situation. Is that right? Well, you're raising a great point because all of this is also unfolding during a period of very concerning inflation on everything, right? It's not just like food that's getting more expensive. It's basically all of the articles that we need to live in sort of like modern society or the way everybody wants to live now. So, you know, your gas is more expensive, your electricity, your heat, your clothes, everything is more expensive, partly a byproduct of, you know, supply chain with COVID and partly a product byproduct of maybe like COVID ending and everybody trying to spend their money as fast as they can that they saved up or whatever. But I mean, and that's where, you know, food is not just, you know, it's not the only item people are consuming, but, you know, they're going to notice the food because they need to buy that every single day. And I wonder, you know, like, um, how that gets resolved in places like Egypt and, and, you know, Algeria to a lesser extent. I mean, Algeria has more maybe crude oil. They're benefiting a bit, so maybe they can afford to pay a bit higher prices. But we saw, like, the last time that we had the big run-up in prices that, you know, I'm not going to say it's the only reason the Arab Spring happened, but it certainly helped the Arab Spring happen and a combination of higher food prices and, you know, relatively underemployment of young people. And I don't think they've resolved the relative underemployment of young people in those areas either. So, you know, now that cost of living is going up quite a bit. I mean, it, it could have some political repercussions. Uh, you know, I'm not an expert in that field. You're more of an expert in that field, but I would, I would be concerned about that. And again, I wouldn't want to be in the Tunisian government because when you're relying on imports of a lot of your food staples to provide, um, you know, food security for the country. It's like, where do you pick to start? And, and you know, how much money is left in the, uh, in the kitty to kind of be able to mitigate uh, the cost of living increases that, you know, your entire population is going to face. And the amazing thing about Tunisia, it's 
you know, as, as you pointed out in a, in a really excellent article you wrote last week, like, you know, there aren't that many Tunisians. I mean, it's a pretty small country, but you extrapolate that to bigger countries, um, you know, in Africa or, you know, in the Middle East or even in Latin America, because not every country in Latin America is food self-sufficient either in terms of grains and oil seeds. And, and you get, you know, you get a lot of question marks on how the governments are going to be able to cope with that. Yeah. Um, and I want, I want to ask you about inputs too, but before, well, and something you also said, you said that you're not an expert in, in sort of the political fallout of these things. I'm pretty sure nobody's an expert in the situation we're seeing unfold right now at all. I certainly don't feel like one. I don't think there's any historical precedence for what the world is going through right now. There are certainly folks who have experience in agriculture and have experience in geopolitics, but there's this old Hemingway quote that's been running through my head and he's talking about in the quote, he's talking about what it what it takes to be a great writer. And he talks about, you know, how writers really just acquire information quicker than other folks and then are able to spit it back out. I think that's where we are analytically, because you need all those old frameworks to get some sense of direction and context of where we're going. But where we go from here, it's really just read as much as you can, find out as much as you can and rebuild models on the fly. Because I don't, I certainly don't feel like anything in my experience, even the Arab Spring um, analogy, isn't going to allow us to predict perfectly what's going to happen next. There's just that much uncertainty out there. Um, and, and on that note, before we leave kind of the, the MENA region, the country we haven't talked about yet, and the one that in some ways is most confounding for me um, in all of this situation and has been from the beginning is Turkey. Um, they're the ones that are hosting the Russia-Ukrainian talks. They were very strident at the beginning of the war. Now they're sort of taking a softer tone. I know they import a lot of energy and food from Russia. Um, where are you seeing Turkey from from your perspective, and where do you think it goes from here? And is that one of those countries that might have food insecurity, or can they make up some of the gap? Well, there's two issues with Turkey. They're sort of a relatively big producer of, you know, wheat and other crops like pulse crops and stuff like that. They had sort of drier conditions. They've sort of alleviated some of that dryness now. But I mean, I would say that they're probably looking at, you know, a sub average crop, like maybe it won't quite be good. So that hurts them a little bit. The second thing is they've kind of become like a bit of a grocery store for that region in terms of value-added products. Like they're one of the biggest uh, exporters of, you know, milled products like flour products and lots of food products and processed products. So, and then the third thing, I guess, if I had that one other thing is like, even before the war, they were having a lot of like fiscal uncertainty and, you know, uh, problems with their own economy, um, which makes sort of that um, break bulk trade, like where you buy a, you know, a big Panamax of something and make it into something else, uh, you know, even just even just repackaging it into smaller pieces, it makes it attractive in one sense, because a lot of that is conducted with, uh, you know, US dollars, which would be a harder currency than the Turkish lira right now, and probably mm-hmm. always. Um, but yeah, I, I think Turkey does play a huge role. And and again, you know, I really like your comments just before saying like we're all sort of, you know, trying to figure out the directionality of everything. And, and you know, uh, we don't have a roadmap that tells us where it's going to go. And we have to really acknowledge that, you know, it's unfolding in a, you know, there's just so many things happening everywhere all at once. 
heightened uncertainty and elevated volatility. And Turkey's definitely a contributor to that because, you know, I, I think like just the instability of their economy has been something that's been a factor in the grain and oilseed trade for some time because, you know, they are a key co- uh, component of, you know, like places like Syria, Lebanon, uh, Egypt and, and Iraq and, and all those countries in terms of buying uh, finished products from them. And, and, you know, it seems like it's working so far. And again, even with the Russians, they have this system where the Russians sort of ship a bunch of grain over there and then store it in warehouses and then sell it to them, you know, at a later date. But you would think that that might be a little bit of an issue. And also just the fact like today they have found another mine and yesterday they found a mine like if, if a ship does blow up in the Dardanelles or something like that, I mean, that's going to have a colossal impact on, you know, ship insurance and all of that kind of stuff. So it's it's a pretty interesting situation, which I don't really have a complete, you know, answer to. But just to say that I think Turkey is a watch point that we have to watch very carefully, both on a policy and procedure basis. I'm not, sh- I'm not sure whether I'm relieved or even more worried that you're as confused about Turkey as I am. So we'll leave that there. Um, let's go to the, uh, the other thing I wanted to pick your brain about was fertilizer, because that's one of the big things coming out of this Russia-Ukraine war. And again, this is another one of those issues that was already there before, because we were talking about fertilizer with Belarus originally. I mean, what, it feels like five years ago now. I can't, I have no sense right. of space time anymore. But whenever Belarus and Lukashenko were having their protests, you had force majeure on a lot of Belarusian um, exports already. You had the Chinese banning phosphate exports, I guess, around this time last year. Um, let, maybe let's start more specific and we can work our way out. For Canadian farmers in particular, are they feeling the the squeeze of those fertilizer prices? And then maybe we can zoom out from there. But let's start just with how are, how are Canadian farmers dealing with the rise in fertilizer prices? Definitely. Like, I think just broadly speaking, like input prices, fertilizer being a main one, are really causing some consternation and some concern for Canadian farmers. More so, though, is the fact that, you know, in certain instances, availability has been an issue. And even, you know, like uh, the Ontario farmers rely quite heavily on imports from Russia. So, you know, I think they last I heard was that maybe they have about 70 percent of their needs for this year, including what they might top dress uh, winter wheat with and then what they need for uh, for um, the corn crop. But there that is a 30 percent gap, which I mean, would have to be delivered, you know, through the St. Lawrence Seaway Channel system. And I mean, again, like if they're coming in on Russian boats, they're not allowed right now. So, you know, that is a big concern is just like actual physical availability and, you know, price as well for Canadian farmers. We're hearing a lot of questions on that. And I mean, again, you know, um, there's, there is definitely a correlation between uh, fertilizer prices and oil and, and, you know, energy prices. And, you know, even before the war with Ukraine and Russia, uh, you know, like my view on crude oil prices was that they were going to go higher and spend meaningful time above a hundred dollars a barrel uh, because, you know, we just haven't put on the uh, productive capacity in the rest of the world, but in particular in the U.S. and Canada, we haven't sort of like, you know, got back to the levels that we were at pre-coronavirus. And it looks like it's, you know, very sticky coming back. And a lot of the companies are trying to be very conservative, maybe not because the company wants to be, but because their shareholders are demanding it. Like that is probably the biggest, the biggest factor there. And I mean, again, I just think that like, if we're going to be 
having a uh, higher uh, energy price sector for for you know sort of like the next twelve to eighteen months, then that's going to make the solving the problem on the fertilizer side even a little bit more difficult because you know. Uh, there is such a correlation between, you know, those productions and the price of, uh, of gas and, and other energies. Is there any saving grace in, in food prices rising for farmers? Like, are they going to be able to make up some of the increase in inputs off of those prices or are those prices misbalanced or the, are the price of the inputs rising faster than maybe it, it than the, the higher food prices means anything for them? Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, again, um, right now, the prices that, you know, appear for planting decisions for, say, the North American farmer, for like corn, soybeans, wheat, canola, etc., even with the higher cost of inputs, they're still penciling out with a positive ROI, return on investment. Um, I think that what farmers are struggling with is they're worried that, you know, because they're only comfortable selling so far forward uh, a physical crop that they haven't grown yet, right? Uh, they're worried about, you know, what if it's a very successful growing season and the prices collapse and the war ends quickly? So I think that that is, you know, a lot of people have said like, oh, why won't, you know, maybe more acres should be put into production, I, my own opinion, and it could be wrong here, is that farmers are going to be pretty conservative in this coming cycle to plant more than what they've ordinarily planted in the last four or five years. Uh, and I would suspect that like Canadian farmers and American farmers will not increase the acreage base too much unless it's like absolutely low-hanging fruit. But if they have to work the land to get it back into production and, and you know, buy things and this kind of stuff, I don't think that's going to happen because, I mean, I just think that they have too much risk on, on uh, you know, like, again, they're individual people, but collectively, I think there's a big concern that they're going to face a big inverse at one point if the growing season is successful. And that's sort of keeping them, you know, in their channels on, you know, in Canada on their rotations and in the U.S. on the absolute acreage base that they will, uh, they will farm. Makes sense. Uh, if, if we're zooming out a little bit more, um, because again, this is, it seems like fertilizer, it, it, it matters more for some countries than other countries. There's a reason Jair Bolsonaro was in Russia two weeks before the war talking to Putin because Brazil needs an awful lot of fertilizer. Are there particular yes. countries from your perspective that are really at risk of either food insecurity or normal exporters that we should be expecting lower crops from because of the fertilizer shortages? Um, or has it not gotten quite there yet? Well, again, I would say if you ask me, the way I'm going to answer this question is going to say the most important variable in the whole context of food right now. And this is an interesting one because it typically is the most important, but I kind of suspected that this year it might not be. But now it's absolutely back to being the most important variable is U.S. corn yield in 2022. And, you know, if you just pencil it out and you look at the expected acres, and we're going to get a report on Thursday of this week on March 31st about the prospective plantings in the United States. And, you know, the number seems to be coalescing around 92 million acres. That actually, at 92 million acres, the only outcome that would prevent prices from gaining support 
would be a record corn yield. So you need 177 bushels or higher. And they've only accomplished, obviously, 177 bushels last year. Now, in that context, if there is a farmer in the U.S. or enough farmers in the U.S., like 10, 20 percent, who didn't buy enough forward fast enough, or it's slow getting there, and you get a yield drag on those 20% of, say, even 2 or 3% just because they don't have the fertilizer they're used to having. And that contributes to like a 1% or 2% national decline in, in yield. Uh, you know, you end up in an interesting scenario. So even like a 174 bushels break, and we're not even talking about weather yet, right? And mm-hmm. uh, so I would say the U.S., even though it's such a great country and a great agricultural producer, is even in the U.S., there could be a tangible impact because fertilizer is not as readily available or more expensive or people are going to, you know, risk uh, like maybe just shorten the amount they put on a little bit to save them a bit of money and time and stuff like that. And then you mentioned the other one, quite critically, Brazil, because the other crop that's absolutely paramountly important in the world right now is the 2022-2023, uh, so that's the marketing year, Brazilian soybean crop. There's no possible way the U.S. crop on its own can solve the sort of tightness that we're going to experience in the global oil seeds market and and soybeans in particular. Um, So it's just a bridge to get to the next and the most important crop, which is that Brazilian soybean crop, which they'll start to plant this fall and harvest around this time next year, a little bit earlier. And uh, that's a crop that in conjunction with, with their corn crop, even if they don't need a lot of fertilizer, but the way that they farm there, they need to make sure that they're getting their fertilizer in and everything like this for their corn crop. And the farmer might get a little bit nervous if he thinks that he's having trouble getting the fertilizer needs. Does that mean he plants more soybeans, less soybeans, uh, you know, more corn, less corn? I mean, I I think it's a big issue. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of weather, I mean, well, first of all, don't talk to me about weather. We just had a tornado in downtown New Orleans, so w- weather feels crazy to me. But Brazil in particular, they're dealing with uh, with a major drought, and who knows if it's going to be over by the time they're planting. I mean, I guess, hopefully, I mean, we've had this double-dip La Nina. I guess it's supposed to go out, but I don't think anybody's ever made a, a career out of, out of perfectly predicting the weather. Um, so I, I just on base what on, uh, based on what I know, I would be pretty pessimistic about Brazil in particular. Is that where you are, or are we getting ahead of our yeah, I mean. I think I'll answer that question by saying that, you know, um, I'll put a bias out there. Like I, I am a believer in, you know, global climate change, like something's happening. And, you know, if we look at the modeling and we say that, you know, uh, like what happened 20 years ago or 15 years ago, like that might not be as predictive of the future as it used to be. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think like the scenario that we're in in 22 right now is that, you know, we really need the European Union to hit a crop. We need uh, Canada to hit a crop. We need the U.S. to hit a crop. And then when we go to South America, we need Argentina to hit their crop. We need Brazil and, and Australia to hit their crop. You know, the unknowns are sort of like, well, yeah, we'd like Russia to hit their crop. We'd like Ukraine to hit their crop. Kazakhstan to hit their crop, but, you know, those are a little bit more circumspect, but it's just hard to imagine um, a scenario 
when we need sort of trend or better yields in all of those places, I would probably <clears throat> take the under on all of them hitting it, right? And that's just because I would say that, you know, the weather um, is is such an unknown right now. And it just, it's, you know, it's always been the risk inherent in farming. But I've just heard so many farmers even say lately, like, yeah, I just don't know. I, I It's not, the rain isn't coming at the time that it, it used to come, or, you know, the temperature is getting higher. And I mean, we talk a lot about moisture, but Last year, we just had these, you know, extreme temperatures and a lot of the sort of, you know, I'm not, again, not a climate scientist, but I'm just saying like, you know, just look at what happened in Antarctica. Like they're not growing anything in Antarctica, but they might be able to grow something in Antarctica pretty soon because they had a lot of days like where, you know, they actually had good growing degree days, like 70 degrees and stuff like that. And, you know, I, yeah, I'm very, very... um I, I, I would hate to like predict a weather calamity anywhere. What I'm not, what I will be able to predict here is that I'm just going to say during the growing season, it's not going to be smooth sailing every day of the year of the growing season. And mm -hmm. during that growing season, there's going to be at least one instance where market perceptions are going to be very worried about the crop. And during that time, we could see prices spike to, you know, very, very high levels. And again, I think things like, you know, the USDA crop ratings reports are going to be very, very heavily subscribed to and read. Uh, I think people are going to be interested in what's happening with the Canadian crop, what's happening with the European Union crop. And I just think that during the growing season, we're going to see a continuation of heightened uncertainty and elevated volatility in the markets. Well, this is why we have you on, Neil. You're full of insights. Before I let you go, um, two random questions. I don't know if you'll be able to answer them, but let's let's see. The first thing was, I certainly didn't know this until the Russia-Ukraine war broke out, just how important Ukraine was in terms of global sunflower exports. Uh, is there anybody who's going to take that baton and run with it? Seems like a pretty big opportunity if Ukraine, because it, it doesn't sound to me like even if Ukraine gets some kind of ceasefire with Russia next week, what they are going to plant is probably not going to be sunflowers. It's probably going to be things that the Ukrainians need themselves for food security reasons as well. So is there some reason Ukraine has 50% of sunflower production? And is there some other country that can take over? I, I was sort of just baffled by that and, and wondered if you had any insight there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the short answer is no. I mean, Ukraine is sort of the end all and be all in the sunflower area. I mean, most other countries that grow sunflowers are sort of... Um, you know, they're, they're self-sufficient, I guess. They're not really in the export market. They're just, maybe they're not even self-sufficient, but they're growing them to use them. Mm -hmm. um, I think you got to kind of look at veg oils in, in totality. And, you know, sunflowers certainly have an appeal over in European Union because they don't, in the European Union, they don't see uh, rapeseed or what we call canola here as a human product. So they're not you can't go to the grocery store in too many European cities and buy canola oil to put on, you know, your product or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, when they talk about sort of like a catch-all veg oil there, that veg oil is going to be, you know, largely made of sunflower oil. They obviously use a lot of like olive oils and things like that too. So sunflower oil and to a lesser extent, a little bit of soybean oil are, are kind of like key uh, cooking oils in, in the uh, European Union. In Canada and the U.S. and a lot of the rest of the world, I mean, I think just from availability, like the dominance of of soybeans, I mean, uh, you know, you, you, that that 
has a big market share of the human consumption. Although it's very rare to see in a lot of countries any product that's actually called uh, soybean oil. It's usually just a veg oil mix. Mm. So yeah, I don't I don't see that problem being solved. And I don't like sunflowers. Even here in Canada, they were just you know uh, the, they were just talking about it and they were saying like sunflower acres are going to be down year on year in Canada. And uh, you know. It, like the problem is, is like the markets are very divergent in the sense that like, you know, we're not really part of the global market for sunflowers. So a very, very small amount of sunflowers would be exported uh, offshore at all. I mean, our entire market is to export to the U.S. or something like that. So I think mm-hmm. that is a critical crop. I also think that the two or three million tons of rapeseed that Ukraine produces is the marginal ton is contained within those two or three million tons because that almost mm. all gets exported to the European Union for animal uh, feed, but also for the biodiesel program in the European Union, which is mandated, right? So, and the European Union, for a variety of factors, has been decreasing canola acreage, rapeseed acreage for like the last five or six years, limiting the uh, chemicals that farmers can use on canola. And now with Brexit, they also kicked out some other canola acres that were in Great Britain. So, uh, unless the European Union changes their biodiesel mandate, I mean, they're going to have to try to compensate for, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a critical amount, the, you know, two and a half to three million tons of production that the uh, that Ukraine did. Now, that's mostly a winter crop in Ukraine. So presumably that crop is in the ground and is, is ready to be, you know, tended to and then brought towards harvest. But that's the big unknown. Like what percentage of the land can be accessed right now? Is it like, uh, you know, two thirds or three quarters or four fifths? We're not sure. Hmm. Um, and then the other curveball I wanted to throw at you was cotton, because that's something near and dear to my heart down here in the Southeast, because we've got a lot of cotton and cotton futures in the market has been have been doing very weird things, a lot of which just has to do with the way the market is structured right now. And it kind of looks like cotton is going to probably the the bottom will fall out from under it, or at least that was how it looked to me before the Russia-Ukraine war started. Um, any thoughts on on the cotton industry or is that outside your bailiwick? Well, I don't know much about cotton, but I will bring this up. And that's that, you know, the other X factor in the room, call it the elephant in the room or the dragon in the room, is China. And, you know, China is obviously an absolute integral part of all, you know, agricultural markets for the most part. And, you know, they're a dominant, dominant player in the cotton market. So one question I have about China, and maybe, you know, you can discuss this with me as well, is like, you know, I think one of the things that's happened on Monday and Tuesday of this week so far is that, you know, COVID is clearly not over in China, nor is the zero tolerance policy. And I think that is a, you know, a significant risk factor uh, going forward in all markets, but also in the ag markets as well, because, you know, a lot of the logistics of loading and unloading or processing or whatever happens in in those spaces. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, maybe by the summertime, it will be clearer, but it's, it's really a big unknown what what this COVID is going to look like in in China in the next, uh, you know, call it uh, five to 50 days. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, 
I, I do have a couple of thoughts there. The, the first is that, um, you know, the Chinese said that they've been, well, let me start over. The, the Chinese have been a little softer on the COVID-19 language in the last couple of days, which is, I think is what made the, the lockdown in Shanghai so surprising. But that said, once you look at the actual lockdown in Shanghai, it's an eight-day lockdown. And if you're going to lockdown, that's how you do it. You lock down all of a sudden really, really hard to try and get ahead of it, to try and give your hospital system some breathing room to do some testing, and then you let things go back open. Lockdowns are not something that societies, even ones that are tightly controlled like China, can maintain for long periods of time. The whole point of a lockdown is get everybody on board and buy yourself some time. So I think the Shanghai lockdown, to me, it's what's going to happen when the eight days is up. Are they going to go back to relaxation or are they going to try and grip and control something that they can't control? I would expect them to do the former. Now, that doesn't actually mean that things are going to be okay because China's got two things working against it. Number one, their vaccines just don't work as well as everybody else's. That's, you know, that's not even a secret at this point. And a lot of, I mean, they're, I, I, you can't trust any real data out of China, but I've seen that there's actually been some stuff out of China that older people haven't been getting vaccinated as well. The guineas behind me are agreeing with me. Um, <laughs> but then the the second thing um, is just sort of China's a victim of its own success. They've actually done a really good job of controlling COVID, and that means a lot of their population hasn't had it. So if we are going to relax COVID restrictions and the vaccines aren't as good and there's going to be a surge for China, it's probably going to look pretty bad. And China's going to look like parts of the Western world probably a year ago when things were really bad as well. So I think the the country that has already gone through this to compare with China is Vietnam, because Vietnam had a very successful lockdown period, didn't really use vaccines all that much. And then Omicron just hammered them. It was too contagious for their controls and everything spun out, spun out there. And it was a two to three month disruption. And I mean, I spoke to some clients who were there in the manufacturing space and like factories were shut down and it was really scary there for two or three months. And then things kind of came back to normal. So for me, and, well, yeah, with, go ahead. With Vietnam, like this is a good question. Like what was socially, what did that do to sort of, uh, you know, like obviously COVID's been a big, uh, you know, challenge to Western governments and even like, you know, the approval ratings of Western politicians or mm -hmm. whatever. In the Vietnam experience, how did like, uh, how did, like, what is the feeling of the population about the government at the moment? Uh, I wish I knew. And if anybody out there figures out how to opinion poll the Vietnamese people, I would love to talk to you. Uh, you were talking about how India, it's hard to get information. Vietnam is one of the hardest countries I find to get information on, period. Their government is somewhat of a black box and they control things really tightly. The only proxies I have for that is, are the supply chains working? Are workers showing up in the factories? Are things moving? Um, and for two or three months there, they weren't. It was really bad. And that's when you saw companies like Nike saying publicly, oh, like things are going to get bad here. Our supply chain is shut down. They're not anymore. So there was two or three months of, and I don't want to like um, underplay it. It was two to three months of significant disruption that scared a lot of people who bet on Vietnam as a post-China haven. But after right. two or three months, you know, society kind of evolved and, and managed to go back to it. So if, if there well, is that I underlying guess. dissatisfaction, it hasn't, it hasn't stopped things beyond a couple months. And I guess I asked the question because, you know, there are some critical sort of benchmarks coming up in China where, you know, even like uh, President Xi has to like, you know, get approved for another term and all of that kind of thing. And it just seems like the, you know, the risk of sort of like um, letting letting Omicron rip through there and maybe, you know, because they have done a, a fantastic job. Like, obviously, like, 
you know, if you're a Chinese person, chances are that, you know, your grandma and your grandpa are still alive because, you know, they haven't faced the Omicron or COVID to the extent that the Western people have. Like there's been less uh, less people die there per capita than almost any country. And I'm just saying if it, you know, and I don't want to be morbid, but I'm just saying if it sort of gets out of control there for that two or three or four month period, that would be a heightened risk, I would think, just because of sort of the circumstances of where they are on their timeline for sort of decision making and, you know, uh, like cementing the, the current regime and the current uh, attitudes. And, and, you know, very much so, I think that, um, you know, at least she and the, those top guys have been, you know, uh, the zero COVID is very much associated with with them. But yeah, and I, I would encourage listeners, if you haven't already to and, and you, if you haven't seen it, Neil, to watch the documentary 76 Days. Um, I'm not sure which streaming platform it's on, but somebody sent it to me sort of very early on in the pandemic. And it it's it's the 76 days of lockdown in Wuhan after the virus appeared. And there was a documentary film crew there that filmed some really raw footage oh. of what was happening in China. And this was at the very beginning, before we knew what was going on. And maybe this was going to be like a station, level, uh, station 11 level pandemic rather than just what it turned right. out to be, which was horrible, but you know could have been a lot worse. Um, and for anybody who feels, um, you know, that COVID is politicized and things like that. I encourage them to watch that documentary because it, it goes to show you there's at a certain point, the virus doesn't care about politics. It was just killing people. And China had a front row seat before anybody else about how destructive it could be. And I think that informed how the Chinese government reacted to it because it was so bad and it was so uncertain and they were the first ones to go through it. Nobody else gave them a playbook to go forward. I think now though, and I, and this is a, a really important point you bring up and it's it'll be fascinating to see what happens with it um it seems to me that china's under a lot more economic pressure now than it even was two years ago and that she is doing a lot of things especially in the real estate sector and especially in terms of trying to boost consumption and have some more fiscal discipline to where um if they're going to shut down now it's going to have real economic consequences and it i've been saying for the last three to six months now so the most important thing for China right now is, is the performance of its domestic economy. Like, I think that is the thing that she is thinking about most. And if that's what he's thinking about the most, his priorities are going to have to shift from zero COVID to how do we live with this and keep the economy going? That's what I think is going to happen. But if, if he does lock down, if Shanghai goes from an eight day lockdown to a 30 day lockdown and China's shutting down like Vietnam was, then I'm wrong. And then we're kind of in a completely different universe. So I, I think those are really, really important things to watch. And we'll know fairly soon which way the Chinese government is going to go. Yeah. And one of the reasons I bring that up is because, again, when you talk about, you know, the supply situation in the world and production and all that, you know, you, the key countries are countries like the US and Canada and Brazil. But when you talk about the demand, uh, the key country is really China. Like, uh, and it dictates where we're going to go um, in terms of price, because if, if we reach a price level where they stop buying or if they're not able to buy because of uh, some sort of, you know, like the pandemic is raging on there and they're dealing with other things, um, you know, that's going to certainly have an outsized impact, even relative to their overall import uh, potential for certain crops. So when you talk about things like barley, or even malt barley, where you're making beer, or you talk about wheat, or even spring wheat, where they like to buy some spring wheat for, you know, hotels or, or some products they make, but also they've, they've had a tendency to like to store incremental 
uh, tons of spring wheat as sort of like a strategic reserve. So they always have a bit of that, even though they don't grow very much of that and even don't necessarily use much. But it's a good bang for the buck because of the protein and all of that. Uh, so, yeah. It, and, you know, you started this off by talking about cotton. And I would I would guess, like, even though I'm not a cotton expert, you know, you if you want to know about the cotton market, you probably have to know about what China's doing with cotton, both in terms of a demand and a supply aspect to it. So, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I find it fascinating. And again, it just shows you that that's another unknown uh, that can contribute to our sense of uncertainty and the fact that we might face elevated volatility for a longer period of time than we presumably would otherwise. Yeah. Well, I think it's going to last a while. So, Neil, we'll have you back on in a little while and we'll we'll see how, how wrong we were, or how right we were about some of this stuff. But I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh And good to see you, man. Cheers. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, If you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners. So please don't be shy. Uh, You can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, We're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.